Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Fired Up podcast right here on WJMS Media. This is Steve, and I'm your host. And I got to tell you, it is feeling more and more like summer up here in the Northeast in Pennsylvania where I live. And hopefully wherever you are that you're getting uh, some of that good summertime weather happening. Uh, And it's not just the weather that is heating up. Obviously, there's a lot of heat brewing in the political space as well. Uh, We're going to talk about that in this show. Uh, Starting it off with the fact that uh, this week, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, or DeSantis, whichever way you choose to pronounce it, uh, but that's a separate story, uh, announced his uh, official candidacy for president on the Republican uh, nomination ticket. So now we have uh, at least five candidates uh, on the Republican side. Former President Trump, Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Asa Hutchinson, and some of the lesser-known candidates on the Republican side include uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Larry Elder. On the Democratic side, uh, the individuals challenging uh, President Joe Biden include Marianne Williamson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Uh, have also launched uh, Democratic campaigns for the nomination of their party. So uh, the races are heating up, uh, the fields are getting crowded, and we are going to be knee-deep in politics uh, for the next uh, 16, 18 months. So strap in, keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times, and we will work hard to keep you posted on what's going on in the, the political world as we work our way up through the primaries and uh, up to the uh, conventions uh, sometime late in the summer uh, or early fall. And finally, up to the election uh, in November of next year. Uh, it is going to be an interesting uh, political season, to say the least. And, you know, it will remain to be seen if how many on the Republican side of the candidates remain in the race uh, and how many will uh, just come in, deliver their message or try to uh, set some influence on the uh, Republican platform for the election, uh, which is often what a lot of, quote, fringe, uh, close quote, candidates do. Uh, They're entering the race uh, not necessarily uh, with the expectation that they can win, but to bring the message and influence uh, the the, uh, political process, committees and the voters of important topics that should be part of the uh, election discussion. So we will see what happens. Uh, We also are hearing that Uh, former Governor Chris Christie and former Vice President um, Mike Pence are also uh, seriously uh, preparing to join the race. So if you remember the uh, 2016 uh, presidential cycle, I think we were up to about 16 candidates. We had so many Republican candidates when they had debates, they had to do it in two parts. Uh, They had to have, you know, an, an upper tier Uh, of candidates, those who had the higher percentages of uh, uh, popularity or or had performed better in uh, prior polls and so forth. And then we had the second tier of the people who uh, had lower poll numbers uh, and so forth. So it looks like we're going to go that route again. Now, I mentioned that because that uh, also creates an issue in terms of the overall vote totals and could actually spell a, a win for former President Donald Trump, who is the current front runner by, you know, uh, depending on which poll you're looking at on which given day, uh, is anywhere from 15 to 25 points ahead of his next uh, contender, which would be Ron DeSantis. Um, and you know, when you have that many candidates in the field, the vote gets diluted. 
So it, it's not that, you know, uh, whether it's former President Trump or Governor DeSantis, you know, or maybe, you know, Governor Christie or former Vice President Pence. Uh, it isn't a matter of them getting, you know, 50 percent of the vote to win. Uh, in many cases in these crowded fields, uh, candidates will win with, you know, 25 to 30 percent of the vote. So, you know, we will see what happens as we move through the primary season. As I said, it, it's going to be bumpy. Uh, so strap in and, you know, we'll do our best to keep you up to date and keep you posted on, on a weekly basis as to what's going on. Um, in other news, of course, you know, the, the big topic of the week was the fact that the uh, looming debt ceiling crisis uh, has been, you know, uh, uh, averted. Um, we're going to talk about that uh, further on in the program, uh, but for now, um, you know, everybody can at least sort of stand down and realize that, you know, we don't have a, a, a quote, debt ceiling crisis, uh, close quote, uh, whole hanging over our head at the present time. But we'll get into those details uh, a little bit later on in the show. Uh, in other news, and, and kind of speaking of uh, Governor DeSantis, as I said, he announced his uh, bid for president uh, midweek, and he's already uh, traveled to Iowa and New Hampshire, which are among the first uh, uh, campaign and, and voting uh, areas uh, on the Republican side. And one thing is, as he's now started giving his uh, stump speech, you know, that, that canned speech that candidates give, the same speech at uh, different locations, maybe a few minor tweaks, uh, depending on the demographics and the hot button issues of wherever it is that they are at the time. Uh, as far as DeSantis, you know, his stump speech uh, has, you know, obviously been touting what he has accomplished uh, in Florida from the Republican perspective. Uh, but one thing that is uh, noticeably absent or noticeably downplayed uh, in the first two campaign stops that he's done is his uh, stance on uh, abortion ban. Uh, as you know, uh, initially uh, Florida had a 15-week ban and Governor DeSantis signed law into effect reducing that to a six-week ban uh, with some exceptions but some restrictions as well. Um, and, and we've talked about that on this program uh, prior on, so you can go to our archive and dig up uh, the last uh, two weeks or three weeks of our, our podcast to hear that. Um, but, you know, the, the idea here is um, Governor DeSantis is being selective about when he mentions it, about the depth of conversation that he's having on it, depending upon where he is. For example, in more conservative area of Iowa, uh, he did in fact discuss his abortion ban uh, as you know it, it would be a more receptive crowd to the message. But when he was in New Hampshire, uh, he barely mentioned it, if at all, uh, because New Hampshire is obviously more moderate, and it is the, the type of hot-button issue that could alienate a lot of voters that DeSantis needs if he has any expectation of overtaking uh, Trump in the race. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the subject of abortion is a very hot-button issue, uh, on, especially on the Republican side of the election process. Uh, while Governor DeSantis has been uh, very measured in his response to questions about, you know, his uh, abortion ban in Florida. Uh, former President Trump has also been uh, very low key in how he has talked about um, the the abortion ban process, even though the the uh, Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Uh, occurred on his watch as president, uh, he realizes, as uh, probably most Republicans do and most uh, people seeking, um, you know, moderate 
uh, Republican support uh, that it is a very, very tender subject uh, with certain elements of the Republican Party, uh, which if you are trying to win uh, a general election as opposed to a primary, uh, you need to uh, be aware that you need to capture not only your base, if, if that base is conservative, uh, but you need to capture a sizable chunk of uh, moderate and independent voters as well, uh, who in many cases have a differing perspective on the notion of, you know, women's health and women's right to choose and, uh, you know, abortion bans, uh, restrictions, etc. cetera. Uh, and that can be the difference between winning and losing. And, you know, you can look at the 2022 midterms and the 2020 general election uh, to see the proof of that in action. Uh, many states that thought they had uh, the abortion ban issue locked down found out that their voters uh, had a differing opinion. So we will keep an eye on how that process goes and we'll let you know uh, what transpires. So moving on from uh, the presidential politics uh, for at least a while, um, there's been a lot of controversy going on also uh, among the conservative efforts uh, and ultra-conservative efforts in terms of uh, shaping education in this country. And one of the things that has been going on, not just in Florida, but in other states as well, is uh, reviews of uh, books that are present in schools, particularly elementary schools, and uh, in libraries uh, in schools uh, with regard to their content and, you know, uh, uh, avoiding or eliminating books that, you know, the conservative or the, the ultra, the MAGA uh, group find, quote, offensive, close quote. Uh, one of the interesting things is and, and this has been touched on uh, in the media uh, lightly over the last few weeks that I've heard, um, but uh, it, it has been brought up that one of the most, um, and, I, and I, won't, I, I hate to use the word egregious, but probably one of the heaviest um, uh, violators of the things that you know, these groups find offensive, uh, believe it or not, is the Holy Bible. And um, there's an article that came out uh, this past week uh, that talks about a school district in Utah that uh, last week banned the Bible from school libraries. And they're now being asked to consider whether uh, a, a ban needs to be issued for another uh, you know, foundational religious book, the Book of Mormon. And according to the article, and this occurred in the Davis School District, uh, which serves Davis County, north of Salt Lake City, said it was considering a new complaint demanding the removal of the foundational text of the Utah-based Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a.k.a. the Mormons. Uh, this latest potential removal uh, is, is coming just a week after the Bible was taken off the shelves of libraries in elementary and middle schools after being deemed by a committee to be inappropriate because it contained vulgarity or violence. Uh, it will be allowed to remain in high school libraries. So, you know, obviously, you know, there are, are many passages in the Bible that uh, talk about uh, rape and incest uh, that... Uh, that present an approving picture of slavery and other things that uh, many uh, parents in school districts have found objectionable. Now, in, in truth, the people who brought the Book of Mormon uh, before this uh, review committee, it's one person. So the school district uh, said that it would assess the Book of Mormon for, quote, all elements of the definitions of pornographic or indecent materials, close quote, as defined under a Utah law concerning sensitive materials. Uh, the request to remove the book reference violence, including battles, 
beheadings and kidnappings. And um, the, the issue and bringing the book forward uh, comes from one parent in the Davis School District decided to demand the removal of the Bible, complaining, uh, claiming it to be one of the most sex-ridden books around. Uh, the district decided that while, while the Bible did not violate the Utah law, it was not suitable for younger students. Uh, you know, and he goes on to say, the Book of Norman could be next to be banished. Uh, Joseph Smith, who published uh, the founder uh, of the church, who published the book in 1830, claimed it was translated from inscriptions of prophets on golden plates. Um, it, it's... Uh, supposedly and it's presented as a historically authentic depiction of God's dealings with people in the Americas, although this is disputed by historians and scientists. So, you know, the, another example, and I believe I talked about uh, a similar one uh, in last week's show, where, you know, a, a single individual is uh, raising a complaint and based on that one complaint, there are actions being, take, being taken that impact a, a wide swath of the uh, electorate or the population in an area. And one could question as to whether or not that's fair. I mean, we all have, you know, one thing that we are opposed to, myself included. Um, and, you know, you can express your opposition to something, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it has to trigger, you know, a a large scale action or result uh, based on that single or individual complaint. If you recall, and as we discussed uh, in last week's show, uh, the the book and and poem uh, written by Amanda Gorman. Uh, the young lady, the, the, the teenager who spoke uh, so eloquently at uh, President Biden's inauguration uh, was removed from the elementary library shelves and moved to the middle school shelves. Uh, again, uh, not because it, it had you know, some overt sexual or violent or um, uh, you know, other disagreeable content. Uh, but that one parent thought that it, it presented a message that would um, undermine uh, her child's uh, self-esteem or something to that effect. And as a result of just that one individual uh, exercising you know, that, that disapproval, uh, the entire school district uh, at least at that elementary level, is deprived of what is, you know, a, a very, very uh, beautiful book, uh, beautiful poem. And I, I think the kicker is that when asked about it, the parent admitted she'd never read either the book or the poem. So how do you judge on the value or the impact of a document or a book uh, on your child if you yourself have not you know, read, reviewed, and made an effort to understand uh, the message that, you know, that, that document or that book contains. Uh, it, it is this, you know, this whole uh, snowflake approach to you know, to, to educational content that we've seen in this country uh, for the last uh, few years, or actually probably 10 years by now. Um, and it, it is something that, you know, we as a society need to address. Uh, we need to make sure that, you know, while it is perfectly fine for a single parent in a school district to object to a piece of material, uh, I have no argument with, um, you know, a, a parent disagreeing with something that is being taught to his or her child. Where I have disagreement is where that single parent, because they don't like it, 
imposes their will on everyone else without giving uh, everyone else a chance to weigh in. You know, we talk a lot about this country being a country of majority rules, of consensus, you know, of of working together. And, you know, if if we are going to flip uh, that that saying, and I mentioned it in last week's show, you know, and make the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many, uh, then we are standing that concept of, you know, majority rules and compromise and democracy on its ear. You know, it, it is important for us as parents to be engaged with our child's education or our children's education. Uh, it is equally important that when we find something that we, the individual, object to, that we bring it forward so that the community as a whole, or the, you know, in this case, the school district, uh, you know, system-wide, can have that discussion, come to that consensus, and determine a best course of action for everyone concerned. You know, it, it is uh, just as bad in, in the case of banning a poem or a book based on one, one parent's opinion as it is to add a, a new book or poem into the curriculum, again, based on one parent's opinion. You know, it, it might be the opinion of one parent in a school district that, you know, elementary students uh, would get a benefit from reading, you know, Mein Kampf or, you know, some other controversial uh, book uh, or, or, you know, seeing a, a uh, controversial play or a film. Um, we need to make sure that, you know, we, we are vetting these materials properly. We need to make sure that, uh, that there is uh, at least a consensus, maybe not a majority, but you know, one person shouldn't run that show is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I think it's important that we do stay engaged with the education of our children. I think that is absolutely critical. But I think we also need to follow a process that allows for more than one voice to be heard. So uh, we will keep apprised of what's going on with the potential to ban uh, the Book of Mormon in uh, the Davis uh, County School District. Uh, but I, I find it very interesting that, you know, it, it is uh, something and, and, and the, the uh, moving of a book, you know, the Bible to higher grade levels or the banning of the Bible in certain schools and, and likewise for the Book of Mormon. Uh, I find that uh, worrisome, you know, I, I'm, you know, while I have read some of the Bible, I have not read it cover to cover, freely admit that, and I have, I have not read more than a few uh, excerpts from the Book of Mormon, uh, but that doesn't, you know, give me authority or give me expertise to say that it is, you know, either appropriate or not appropriate for a, a school district. Um, Unless I read both of those books cover to cover and, you know, assure myself that I understand them, uh, then I can offer an educated opinion on the subject. Uh, right now, you know, I can't do that. So we need to make sure that while it is perfectly fine, and as I say, it is perfectly fine for a single parent to raise an objection about something within the school curriculum uh, that engages with their child or their children. Uh, it is not something where that one parent should be the driving force of a school-wide or a district-wide decision. Uh, there needs to be uh, a, a, a broader discussion in the community, not just within uh, the, the school board or the uh, review committee or the correctness committee or whatever that uh, entity is called. Rather, it should be the subject of discussion at 
uh, parent-teacher association meetings or school board meetings, and not just one. There should be a couple. Uh, if we are talking about uh, exercising uh, restrictions on the education of our children, uh, it, it is something that we need to make sure that we have the widest possible uh, discussion about uh, rather than just shoot from the hip and you know execute a plan based on the opinion of one individual or one family you know out of out of a, a district of hundreds or maybe even thousands of individuals or families so you know it, it is something that bears watching it is something that bears discussion and more importantly it is something that bears communication with our school boards with our uh, local uh, elected officials, since they are the ones that, uh, that exercise control over local school boards, uh, we need to make sure that we are communicating with them, we are judging their sense of where the issue stands, and we are offering our opinions and our advice as to how they need to handle this situation in the care and teaching of our children in their district. So, as I said, we will keep an eye on this. Uh, we will see what happens with the review and ultimate decision on the Book of Mormon in uh, Davis County, Utah. Uh, but I, I think this is an excellent illustration of how uh, easy it can be for the, the uh, how do I say this, for the more conservative um, thinking among us to exercise and outsize control. You know, we've talked about, you know, how uh, the, a, a few through exercising, you know, uh, various rules and, and loopholes in laws and procedures uh, can achieve an, an oversized or an outsized uh, influence based on their numbers uh, in community. This is how we get you know, gerrymandering in place. This is the effect of that gerrymandering. So, you know, we need to be vigilant and we need to make sure that, you know, while if a community votes to gerrymander a district and the vote is free and fair and, and clean, then fine. You know, gerrymander that district. It happens in Republican areas and it happens in Democrat areas. Where it gets murky is where um, rules are, you know, deflected and loopholes are exploited and um, you know, disenfranchisement limits the access of voters uh, to make a decision on something and so on and so forth. That's what we have to watch out for. So, you know, as I said, we will keep an eye on uh, Davis County, Utah, and we will let you know what happens with the Book of Mormon. All right, let's take our first break here. Uh, you're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. Let me know what you think uh, about uh, a, a, a ban on the Bible uh, and or a ban on, you know, the Book of Mormon. Uh, what, other, what other books might be next? Uh, will, they, will they issue, uh, will someone come up with a ban for the Quran? Uh, or the Torah, you know, or, you know, take, take your pick of the religious materials that exist in our, uh, in our library system. So let me know what you think. The email address for the show, the best way to get in touch with us is firedupradio at yahoo.com. I strongly encourage uh, listeners to, to give me feedback on this. I want to understand uh, where you fit in on the discussion of because of its content, you know, because of the things that are in there, the, the rape and the incest and all the other things I mentioned, you know, the, the, the approval of slavery uh, and so forth. Um, should the Bible be uh, on the banned book list, you know, in, in a broader sense? Same thing with the Koran. What other um, so-called uh, religious foundation materials um, should be examined. Let me know. Send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. All right, we'll be right back after this break. You're listening to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media, and we will be right back.
Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 45 times in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library was for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was there that you got involved in the sit-ins. You would be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion, and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. <laughs> got arrested the first time, and you felt so free. You felt liberated. You felt like you had crossed over. Free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You probably will never believe it, but the boy from Troy, as Dr. King used to call you, will become the embodiment of nonviolence in America. America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march for voting across the Pettus Bridge in Selma. We're marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We're marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. Troopers here advance toward the group. You were beaten on that bridge. You were left bloody. You thought you were going to die. But you would make it. You would live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you live in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what, young John? That some divine providence as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. John, thank you 
for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, you've been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. And believe as Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and others taught you that we're one people. And it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American or Native American. That maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came here in different ships. We're all in the same boat now. John, you understood the words of Dr. King when he said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we will perish as fools. Rest in peace, Representative John Lewis, and thank you, and God bless you. And welcome back to the Fired Up Podcast right here on WJMS Media. So uh, the next story I want to talk about, um, and uh, I, I can say that uh, this story is is kind of like a comet in that it circles around uh, every so often and comes back into... Uh, the visible spectrum and, and, and discussions. Uh, and it has to do with supporters uh, and opponents of affirmative action. Uh, this story comes out of CBS News and it was uh, posted on June 4th. And it talks about a gentleman by the name of Edward Bloom of Tallahassee, Florida. And he is the founder and president of Students for Fair Admissions, a group he acknowledges starting to challenge higher education affirmative action policies in court. Uh, He has said, and and quoting here, the equal rights provision of our 14th Amendment basically gets to the point that people should not be treated differently because of their race or ethnicity. Uh, He also argues that affirmative action violates the 1964 Civil Rights Act, uh, quoting, the opportunities must be the same regardless of your race and ethnicity, he said. Now, in you know, my opinion, and I'm not a lawyer, and uh, neither is Mr. Bloom, uh, is that uh, these laws uh, were put in place to affect uh, some level of remedy for uh, past uh, indiscretions or, or past poor decisions of the country with regard to uh, ethnic minorities uh, within its borders. Um, and, you know, it, it's clear that affirmative action, as it says in the article, has helped boost the number of black, Latinx, and other minorities who are underrepresented at prestigious schools. And that's a key word, underrepresented. Uh, the the uh, racial prefer- preferences now uh, may be prohibited uh, in large part due to Bloom's effort. The Supreme Court is now considering cases he brought targeting affirmative action at the University of North Carolina, uh, which is, uh, by the way, the nation's oldest public university, and Harvard, which is, by the way, the nation's oldest private college. Uh, His two cases, uh, Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. uh, v. President and Fellows of Harvard College, and Students for Fair Admissions, Admissions, Inc., the University of North Carolina, both are uh, cases that are targeting the uh, legitimacy and legality of affirmative action programs at these institutions of higher learning. Uh, He's not the first time he's done this. He previously spearheaded two cases in which the Supreme Court struck down voting policies designed to help racial groups, uh, particularly in, in those cases, African-Americans and Hispanics, that have endured 
prior discrimination. Uh, he did lose a 2016 case in which he backed uh, a lady by the name of Abigail Fisher, who unsuccessfully challenged racial consideration in admissions at the University of Texas. Uh, but those were uh, from several years ago, and the Supreme Court of 2023 is a lot more conservative uh, than it was in the past. I don't think anyone would argue with that statement. When asked by the interviewer if uh, he would just if he was just determined to keep bringing cases until you got the court to agree with you, uh, his reply was that quote legal advocacy requires a long term commitment. Uh, in fact, uh, there are uh, at present nine states that have enacted bans on racial preferences in state colleges, with some reporting a drop in African-American and Latinx admissions at top institutions. Now, affirmative action advocates say that a nationwide ban would be disastrous. According to Mitchell Crusto, a professor at Loyola University in New Orleans College of Law, said, quote, Affirmative action is really trying to treat everyone equally, recognizing that certain groups have been marginalized over the centuries. Uh, and, you know, it goes on to say how uh, Mr. Crusto uh, grew up in segregated Louisiana, where, quote, most of the restaurants in town did not serve black people. Water fountains were segregated, so there was a white only and a black only water fountain. Uh, the Woolworths department store. Uh, you could not have a counter service if you were black. And you can go back in your history and look at the, uh, the sit-ins of the 1960s and gather more information on that. Um, you know, and, and he goes on, the article goes on uh, to talk about even after the Supreme Court mandated school desegregation, most of Crusoe's schooling was in segregated Catholic schools in New Orleans. He was a top student and also, he acknowledged, an affirmative action beneficiary in 1971. Uh, the author asked, you knew when you applied to Yale that they were interested in you not just as a student because they wanted to bring in more African-American students. Um, absolutely, absolutely, he replied. Uh, race is just one aspect. I wasn't accepted to Yale because I'm black. I was accepted into Yale because of all the other things that I am as a person, of which I'm also African-American. And he went on to graduate from Yale College uh, magna cum laude and was admitted to Yale Law School. Mr. Crusoe uh, argues that the Supreme Court should uphold the previous rulings that colleges have a genuine interest in including students from different racial and ethnic groups, uh, citing for all students who are at a university, having a diverse campus of individuals with different backgrounds adds to the educational goal of the university, he said. Uh, for his part, uh, Edward Bloom, who is a descendant of Holocaust survivors, contends that when colleges have considered ethnic backgrounds of applicants, it has hurt certain groups. Back in the 1920s, it's well documented by dozens of historians that Harvard had policies in place to discriminate against Jews, he said. Fast forward now to the 1990s and 2000s, we believe that Harvard has policies that diminish the likelihood that high-achieving Asians are being admitted. Now, the article fact-checks that statement by saying, in fact, Harvard recently announced that 30% of those admitted this year are Asian American, more than four times the representation in the total U.S. population. Uh, so, you know, it, even though uh, this, this fact is, is out there, uh, some Asian Americans are taking a stand against affirmative action plans that tend to help other minorities. So you know, the, the battle lines on this are not just uh, for uh, white versus minorities, but it's also sparking battle lines between minority groups uh, in terms of how affirmative action uh, would best be implemented uh, at colleges and universities, particularly the, the top tier uh, colleges and universities in this country. And one could argue that, you know, by extension, that other uh, 
industries and other areas of the country will also see the effects of the outcomes of this battle, you know, where uh, companies have, you know, uh, targets of hiring a certain number of minorities to their their employee base, uh, you know, and, and overturning of these college level affirmative action rules could trickle down to see a constriction of the number of you know, racial and, and ethnic minorities that uh, enter into the workplace at some companies in this country. Um, so, you know, it, it is it is clear that, you know, this battle has uh, returned, even though anecdotally uh, really has never left. It's always been an ongoing battle uh, for at least as long as I can remember going back into the, the, the 70s and 80s. However, given the current uh, divisiveness between uh, groups in this country today, uh, it is clear uh, that this could be yet another case of uh, divide and conquer, uh, trying to, to peel off uh, what could naturally be assumed as uh, you know, minority groups that have common interest uh, by pitting one group against another, uh, you know, where the, the idea is because a university is admitting more Asian American students that they are admitting fewer uh, Latinx or African American and so forth, uh, creating this sort of intrinsic conflict between the groups. Um, so the, the key is, in, in my opinion, that the, the idea of affirmative action is at its root an idea of fairness. Um, you know, if you believe that an institution that may, for example, have participated in you know, some level of racial discrimination or racial injustice in the past needs to overcompensate for that by you know, uh, identifying and holding open uh, admission slots for certain groups, that's all, all well, good, and fair. Uh, the, the idea that you know, it, it, it can be done without, say, the force of law. Um, when I hear the you know, proponents saying that you know, all of it should be colorblind, that doesn't take into account the fact that there is a historic and systemic element of racism in this country. And I, I don't think you can argue against that. Uh, so the idea at the end of the day is that, yes, everyone deserves a fair shot at, you know, being admitted based on their merits uh, into, you know, a, an, an institution of higher learning or into a, a company's workforce or, you know, anything where there is a need to uh, in, include a broader segment of the population, uh, you know, whether imagined or perceived uh, in, in response to perhaps some past, uh, some past uh, grievances. Um, you know, the, the statement is often made that the process should be, quote, colorblind. Now, the problem I have with that is that's all well and good as a goal, but unfortunately, the uh, people who who man the process, the people who make the selections, um, have their own, you know, biases and and prejudices and opinions coming into it, and you know. Words can be said all day long and well into the night that, you know, they they apply them fairly. But we all have implicit biases. Um, and, you know, until we can figure out a way to have a not not a colorblind um, uh, approach to things, but a bias free, you know, a 100 percent bias free approach to it. Uh, then true, fair, 
uh, competition and and comparison between candidates based on their merits uh, is not likely to happen. And, you know, not for nothing, uh, something to think about. Maybe this is something that we could task uh, these these AI uh, engineers to develop to to create a a a a bias free uh, judging system where you know the merits of a potential candidate whether it's for an academic institution or an employment opportunity could be considered without you know at least the inherent biases of uh, the the human psyche so remains to be seen we'll keep you informed as to how these lawsuits go and we'll let you know whatever developments occur all right that being said uh, I, I, I saved the perhaps the best for last um, wanted to talk about uh, this week's uh, uh, resolution of the debt ceiling crisis Yes, that's right. After months of haggling and um, accusations and threats of holding the nation's uh, credit limit hostage uh, for uh, cuts and reductions in programs that they wanted to see uh, from the Republican side, uh, an agreement uh, was made uh, first in the House and uh, the House voted um, 314 to 117 to uh, to do the deal, uh, and that happened uh, last Tuesday. And then on Wednesday, it cleared the Senate. Uh, I'm sorry, on Thursday, it cleared the Senate uh, by a vote of 63 to 36. So what we saw in the House was a majority of both parties' members, 149 Republicans, and 165 Democrats voted to pass the bill. Uh, 71 Republicans and 46 Democrats voted against it, and four members did not vote. On the Senate side, 17 Republicans joined 45 Democrats and two Democrat-leaning independents in supporting the measure. 31 Republicans, four Democrats, and one independent, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, voted against the bill and one senator did not cast a vote so you know after all of the haranguing and uh, finger pointing and arguing and debating uh, the bill finally cleared uh, the house and senate and arrived on president biden's desk uh, on uh, saturday for his signature which he did in fact do so you know, we we had, you know, as I said, uh, months of back and forth, months of accusations uh, by the Republicans that the Democrats were not negotiating, had not come to the table and uh, months of statements from the Democrats that the Republicans were making an unreasonable claim in tying the debt ceiling limit proposals for, uh, for example, a. Uh, 22% uh, across the board cut in uh, discretionary spending uh, to a 1% um, cap on uh, future budget increases to setting the budget levels at 2022 uh, fiscal uh, limits and, and so forth. All of these things uh, that created uh, a lot of furor as the Democrats wanted to see essentially a clean uh, debt ceiling bill, much like the overwhelming majority of the 70-some-odd uh, prior occasions where the debt ceiling has been raised, uh, and, you know, just uh, save the budget items for the budget discussions, which will be coming up later on in the summer as we get closer and closer to the end of the current fiscal year, which will be at the end of September. So, the bill finally made it to President Biden's desk and he has signed it. So that is essentially a done deal, although there is still the risk of some impact to our credit rating simply because uh, for an, another instance, the United States has uh, come to the brink of default 
and has created some uncertainty among uh, credit rating bureaus uh, about, you know, the the uh, American ability to uh, handle its debt ceiling. So what exactly came out in the package? Well, here's what here's what we know, as reported uh, by CNN. Uh, the bill includes uh, legislation that suspends the nation's $31.4 trillion debt limit through January 1st, 2025, uh, which removes it as a potential political issue in the 2024 presidential election. What this means is that there is no uh, a cap on the debt ceiling for the next two years. It will you know, be addressed again you know, in 2025, uh, by the uh, by the lame duck administration going into the new administration, whether that is a, a continuation of the Biden Harris administration or it is a you know uh, Republican administration, it will be dealt with at that time. Another area is it caps non-defense spending, and according to the the text, non-defense spending will remain relatively fat, flat in fiscal 2024 and increase by 1% in fiscal 2025 after certain adjustments to appropriations are made. According to White House officials, after fiscal 2025, there are no budget caps, just non-enforceable appropriations targets. One of the key elements is that it protects veterans' medical care, including the PACT Act. Uh, the legislation will maintain full funding for veterans' health care and will increase support for the PACT Act's Toxic Exposure Fund by nearly $15 billion for 50, fiscal year 2024, and that's according to White House sources. Um, and the House GOP fact sheet concurs with that, saying veterans' medical care will be fully funded. Uh, it, it, does, it, it expands uh, work requirements the package calls for temporarily broadening of work requirements for certain adults receiving uh, food stamps. Uh, currently, childless, able-bodied adults aged 18 to 49 are only able to get food stamps for three months out of every three years unless they are employed at least 20 hours a week or meet other criteria. The legislation will increase the upper limit of the mandate to age 55 in phases, according to the text. However, the bill will also expand exemptions for veterans, people who are homeless, and former foster youth uh, in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, as food stamps are formally known. And all of these changes will sunset in 2030. Uh, additionally, it claws back uh, or, or draws back some COVID-19 relief funds that were unobligated, uh, and that's roughly $28 billion dollars from the COVID-19 relief packages that Congress passed to respond to the pandemic. Uh, it cuts the Internal Revenue Service funding, which is something the Republicans were adamant about, um, but rather than the uh, $80 billion in IRS funding over 10 years uh, that, was that was contained in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, the GOP uh, argued that the money will be used to hire an army of new agents to audit Americans. Essentially, the uh, cuts to the uh, service funding for the IRS uh, totals to about $21 billion. It maintains uh, climate and clean energy measures, uh, won't make any changes to the Inflation Reduction Act's climate and clean energy provisions, according to the White House talking points, and it expands the pipeline in West Virginia, uh, which will speed the creation of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, a natural gas pipeline in West Virginia. So overall, as many uh, media uh, outlets have been saying, um, in, in the deal, uh, everybody got something of what they wanted, um, but the uh, Democrats are generally viewed as getting the better end of the deal uh, in that some of the more drastic cuts and uh, program changes that the Republicans were demanding uh, were not included in the final package. So, you know, it, it, we have a deal. 
uh, it's signed into law and you know the the uh, debt limit crisis for now uh, apparently is resolved um, so that's a good thing uh, remains to be seen if there are any um, remaining impacts to the credit rating of the United States of America if you remember after the last time we went through this um, our our credit rating uh, by um, uh, Moody's I believe it was was lowered from its highest level at triple A down to double A which you know has the impact of increasing the cost of borrowed money and in fact it uh, initiated a uh, 20 point drop in the S&P 500 so remains to be seen as we come into uh, this new week to see what the response will be from the credit and finance agencies uh, around the world if this will have another impact on our credit rating but overall it means that our bills that we we owe will be paid and uh, going forward uh, there is ample funding for money that is going to be borrowed uh, in the future at least for the next two years so overall that would be considered a good thing uh, one of the things to to point out about this deal and, and I think in it, it was the first one that I mentioned that it basically uh, eliminates the the debt ceiling for two years now understand that the debt ceiling is not uh, codified in any law in the United States of America it is really uh, a guiding rule or principle that we we set a a ceiling a upper an upper limit on how much money the United States can borrow as a mechanism to help keep our budget under control so for the next two years uh, that limit uh, doesn't appear it will be interesting to see what the overall impact on the budget of the United States of America has or is under a a a limitless debt ceiling uh, it is not likely that, you know, like you know, many, many of us would do if we got, you know, a brand new credit card with a, a big new uh, spending limit that we'd go out and buy that 80 inch flat screen or, you know, uh, go on that that month long cruise around the world or whatever. But, you know, it it does uh, lead us to keep an eye uh, as a test to see. If there is a level of discipline uh, in spending in government that can be exercised to perhaps make the argument that a uh, a debt ceiling isn't something that is needed, uh, you know, it may be that there is another mechanism uh, that can be used to tie uh, spending to uh, budget cuts or budget reductions uh, in order to maintain a balanced budget. Believe it or not, the United States had uh, a balanced budget for several years during the Clinton administration uh, where we actually ended up running a surplus. Uh, that is, we had you know more money in than we were spending out. So it is possible to do it. Now it just remains to be seen if the political and financial will is there to do it again so we will obviously keep close watch on this we will let you know what happens and what the responses are in the financial world it will be in it it will be interesting to see as i i record this show on the weekend it will be interesting to see as uh the markets open on monday what the response from the financial markets around the world is so we will keep an eye on that. We'll bring you updates and we'll we'll bring some more analysis uh, in next week's show. And hopefully uh, we will continue with the good news. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you all so much for for listening in. As always, I greatly appreciate it. Again, if you have comments or questions, uh, you want to uh, discuss your thoughts on the uh, debt ceiling deal. Uh, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, always, as always, please stay safe, 
even though I, I haven't given numbers in a few weeks because I'm still looking for a reliable source, uh, please be aware that COVID is still a thing and that we do need to protect ourselves and stay safe for ourselves, our loved ones, uh, and our communities. So until next week, thank you all for tuning in. As always, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMS Media. And I look forward to talking with all of you again in seven days.